listener production. Hello, welcome to The Briefing. It is Wednesday the 14th of April. I'm Tom Tilley, joined by Annika Smethurst. Morning, Tom. This week marks 30 years since the Royal Commission into Aboriginal deaths in custody. But have we made any progress? We should stop locking up children. You know, there was a 13-year-old boy who was arrested and and he had gone to the children's court for stealing a, a Fredo frog. This is our justice system. That's your briefing in just a moment. First, here are today's big stories. Former Australia Post CEO Christine Holgate has hit out at the Prime Minister for the way she was sacked. I think you would have rather hoped that before somebody publicly hung you and humiliated you, that they may pick up the phone and call you and ask you directly what happened and why. That's Christine Holgate speaking to ABC 7.30. That was her first media interview on the matter. That came after she spent several hours fronting a Senate committee yesterday where she accused the government and the Australia Post chairman of forcing her out of her job for political reasons. Ms Holgate was pushed out of her position as CEO in October last year after it was revealed she had gifted four Cartier watches to employees for securing a big deal for the company. This was Prime Minister Scott Morrison's response at the time. I was appalled. It's disgraceful. She's been instructed to stand aside. And if she doesn't wish to do that, Mr Speaker, she can go. Christine Holgate told 7.30 she avoided watching that footage uh, and still finds it really distressing. I think it's one of the worst acts of bullying I've ever witnessed. And even now I have to take myself out of myself to watch it. It is an utter disgrace. She also told that Senate committee hearing that her sacking was a gender issue and used the opportunity to call out the government for continuing to defend embattled male ministers. She still hasn't been released from her contract, so that's still being negotiated, and she hasn't ruled out legal action. Uh, She also yesterday said the Australia Post chairman lied and that he should resign, and that chairman Lucio Di Bartolomeo said he wouldn't resign. Annika, what do you make of this whole saga and the Prime Minister's handling of it? Look, I think Ms Holgate did make a bit of a mistake in gifting those watches. I don't think it's a good look. And when she was asked about it, she did say it wasn't taxpayer money, but it is, um, which I think is a problem. Is it a sacking event? Probably not. And I do find this a bit strange, Tom, because this is a position Scott Morrison actually found himself in when he was Managing Director of Tourism Australia he was infamously sacked. So he was been on the other side of this and yet he was so strong and I do think he was a little bit out of line in how strong he went on that, especially, as she said, given some of the issues around his own cabinet ministers. Yeah, and I remember at the time um, his attack from the chamber just seemed to come really out of nowhere. It was so strong and so vitriolic where he'd been seen Mm. not to be so responsive on on other issues. What do you think motivated him to do that? Look, rumour has it uh, that he was actually watching her Senate estimates hearing. He had it on or he passed a room where it was on and he heard her say something about it not being taxpayers' money Mm. and that angered him, uh, especially given uh, coronavirus and COVID and everything that was going on last year. So that's meant to be what prompted him. He, He markets himself as the guy that understands middle Australia and I think that's the aim he was going for. And I think he missed the mark. Having said that, she's the CEO of a big company. She earns 
a very good wage. And when you're in that position, you have to be accountable uh, for these sort of things. I think Labor are the ones that haven't covered themselves in glory here either. At the time, they were calling for a resignation and now they're saying that's wrong. Yep. Labor have been completely hypocritical (laughs) on this. Do you think it will damage the Prime Minister further or do you think this story will go away? Look, I think it doesn't work well for him, especially given what is happening with women in Parliament. At a different time, he might have not lost any sort of political capital over this, but I think it will affect him. Australia's National Cabinet will go back to meeting uh, every two weeks to work on the vaccine rollout in what's being described as a war footing. In a statement announcing the changes, Prime Minister Scott Morrison admitted the vaccine program had faced serious challenges and said the rollout was being disrupted by patchy international vaccine supply and changing medical advice. The National Cabinet involves the state and territory leaders, so that's the premiers and chief ministers, the prime minister and leading ministers. It was formed last year and it met every two weeks at the height of the pandemic, but it's only been convening monthly this year. Authorities have also confirmed Australia's second case of blood clotting linked to that AstraZeneca COVID vaccine. The Western Australian woman is in a stable condition Here's the WA Health Minister, Roger Cook. Her progress has been very positive. She is recovering well. Australia's also recorded its first death from COVID in four months. The 80-year-old man was a return traveller from the Philippines who died in Brisbane. And in the US, in further vaccine news that's quite concerning, they've paused the rollout of the Johnson & Johnson vaccine over blood clot fears. So far, nearly 7 million people have had that vaccine, but six women who have had it have had that rare blood clotting problem and one of them has died. And the fallout from the police shooting in Minnesota continues with the local police chief and the police officer who killed Dante Wright both resigning. There have been days of protests since the African-American man was shot on Sunday during a routine traffic stop. And that happened not far from where George Floyd was killed last year, which sparked that massive wave of Black Lives Matter protests. Uh, And it's also not far where the officer responsible for Floyd's death is currently being tried in court. Meanwhile, US President Joe Biden is expected to delay the date American troops will leave Afghanistan. Donald Trump was planning to pull the troops out by May, but Biden's expected to announce later today that they'll be gone by September 11. Uh, The departure date would coincide with the 20th anniversary of the terror attacks on the World Trade Centre and Pentagon in 2001. And as Great Britain prepares to farewell Prince Philip this Saturday, a tribe on a tiny island near Vanuatu is mourning someone they regarded as a god. Yeah, this is a really interesting story, Um, the way Prince Philip is viewed by this um, tiny Pacific island community. What's the deal here, Annika? Can you explain it? Yeah, the people on this island of Tanna, which is near Vanuatu, believe the prince is basically a human representation or the reincarnation of their god, this mountain deity which watches over their crops and protects them um, from intruders and people coming to the island. It's meant to have started in the 1960s. They were always told, according to folklore, that, uh, you know, their god would return one day with a powerful white queen by his side. So when a couple of the tribes people went over to Vanuatu, to the capital in the 1960s, they saw a photo of him and they thought, well, there he is. That must be our God. <laughs> wow. So I wonder how they're responding to his death. Not well. Look, it, they were told over the weekend, I followed this story quite closely. I'm rather mm. obsessed with it. Um, they go to, through a period of ritualistic wailing. Um, they're pretty upset about the whole thing. I don't know if they're going to get a replacement God. And 
The Duke was aware of this. He never actually visited the island. As close as he got was in 1974. He went to Vanuatu. They uh, rode canoes over many of the tribes people for ages and ages and ages to get there. Uh, and they have sent him spears and different sort of paraphernalia over the years, which he agreed to pose with. And those photos are kept as, you know, in the village as a bit of a shrine to their god. Wow, that is an amazing story. All right, in just a moment, we're talking about black deaths in custody. Over the weekend, in a number of Australian cities, protesters took to the streets to vent their frustration about a lack of progress on black deaths in custody. They were marking 30 years since a key report highlighted this problem. The 1991 Royal Commission into Aboriginal Deaths in Custody made more than 400 recommendations aimed at fixing the problem. Since then, more than 450 Indigenous people have died in custody So how much progress, if any, has actually been made? Yeah, that is the focus of today's briefing. There's a whole raft of issues that need to be dealt with. The unfortunate thing about the Royal Commission into Deaths in Custody was they come up with all these recommendations and sweet bugger all of them was actually implemented. They ended up making nice police cells and and some nice prisons with Aboriginal art and all that type of stuff on, on the wall. But the results got worse. That's Indigenous politician Warren Mundine. He was the chair of the Prime Minister's Indigenous Advisory Council during Tony Abbott's time as Prime Minister. He thinks activists put too much focus on the wrong part of the problem. This is where I think black the, the movement Black Deaths in Custody uh, and Black Lives Matter are getting it a bit wrong. They talk about this, this over 400 people who have died in incarceration, uh, which is tragic. It's said as if it was the police or the corrective services who have failed in this area. So what Warren Mundine's talking about there is the death rate in custody. Now, at the time of the Royal Commission, um, it was found that actually non-Indigenous and Indigenous people were dying at similar rates inside prisons. That's true now too. In fact, actually since 2003, non-Indigenous people have died at slightly higher rates than Indigenous people in custody. A big part of the reason too many Indigenous people were dying in custody was and still is that there's proportionately more of them in custody in the first place. So at the time of the Royal Commission 30 years ago, Indigenous people made up 14% of the prison population when they were only 3% of the total population. And where's that figure up to now, 30 years on? Well, it's far worse. Yeah, from 14% in 1991, uh, the Indigenous carceration rate is now up at 29%. So incarceration rates have actually gotten far worse in the last 30 years. Warren Mundine believes one of the reasons things haven't improved in this area is because the state governments, not the Commonwealth, have dropped the ball. When you look at the big areas, employment, health, education, incarceration and justice system and policing, uh, all of them, state, government and territory concerns, except probably the employment area, which is a, a, a federal area. And when you look at all that... You start to think, well, what are the states and territories are doing in these areas of uh, improving it? Let's hear from a younger Indigenous perspective. Taylor Gray is an Indigenous lawyer and PhD candidate at Newcastle Uni. 
Taylor, thanks so much for joining us. How do you reflect on where we're up to 30 years after the Royal Commission? Uh, Still in disappointment. We've still got a long way to go. What do you see is the the real heart of the problem here? Is it about what's happening in prisons and the number of Indigenous people dying there? Or is it more about the levels of Indigenous incarceration in the first place? I think it comes under something much more deeper um, and it comes back to the sovereignty of the land. We still have unfinished business here in Australia in terms of treaty, in terms of dealing with sovereignty, because our sovereignty has never ceded and we still have two concurrent jurisdictions that run side by side, but only one is acknowledged. I think at the root of this problem of mass incarceration is the dispossession Indigenous people have been undergoing since 1788. Taylor, the last time the Indigenous death rate in prisons was higher than the non-Indigenous death rate was 2002 and three, and that's often a stat used to show that we're making progress, but you don't seem to feel that way. Is it a wider issue for you than, I guess, just how many Indigenous people die in prison? And, And where do you see the root cause of the issue? Again, coming back to the dispossession of the land, you know, like we we are 3% of the population and we are still the the most incarcerated people, not just in Australia, but in the world. Are you worried about the reasons they end up in jail? We, especially with young Indigenous people, we hear that, you know, sometimes they uh, end up incarcerated for reasons that perhaps non-Indigenous Australians would. Is that something you see as a problem? I think anybody in their right mind would see that as a problem Um, and we should stop locking up children. You know, there was a 13-year-old boy who was arrested and and he had gone to the children's court for stealing a a Freddo frog. This is our justice system. The figure that really stood out to me that was concerning was that at the time of the Royal Commission, Indigenous people made up 14% of our prison population and here we are in 2020 and they're making up 29%. Yeah, and if we go even further, the Northern Territory, when we're looking at the youth incarceration, 100% of people in prison, of children in prison, Indigenous youth, were black. 100%. That that was, I think that might have been in 2020 or 2019. Um, so if the 25% is shocking you, let's, let's break it down state by state. 100% of Indigenous children were incarcerated in the Northern Territory. Um, and if that, you know, if that doesn't shock you, then I... I don't know what is. I don't know what's going (laughs) on. So we've seen state and federal governments try and fix this issue for years now with in some ways some progress in some areas and epic failures in other areas. Where do you think they should be focusing their attention and have you thought about whether it is a federal or state issue or will it require both? It's definitely going to require both. In my opinion, it will. It will require both state and federal. And where do you think they should be, I guess, focusing their energies? We saw lots of recommendations from the Royal Commission 30 years ago. Obviously, you know, there's been areas where they haven't made progress. So what's that the case of? Is it money not being directed in the right area or the wrong strategies being put in place? I think both. And when we look at, you know, ways forward, do we want to stop the violence? Do we want to stop the murder? then it's not defund and abolish. I mean, it's not reform. We shouldn't be looking at reform. We should be looking at defunding and abolishing youth prisons and getting to the natural cause of it, like, you know, the rehabilitation centres to help drug and alcohol issues. 
One thing you talk about too is the need for, I guess, as you hinted at then, changing the justice system. So in Victoria, there are Koori-style courts for Indigenous children. Is this something you'd like to see, I guess, in all jurisdictions where Indigenous people are more involved in the process of whether that be rehabilitation or some form of punishment and, and sentencing as opposed to just dealing with it through a more traditional legal system? I think if we are going to create a system that involves Indigenous people, it has to be on our terms. It has to be ran and functioned by Indigenous people um, on our terms, completely separate to the criminal justice system that we already have. We are the oldest living culture in the world. We have the oldest jurisprudence in the world, one that we have perfected over time. Um, And if that doesn't mean nothing, then I don't know what does. You know, we have talks about the Wallamar Court, which is something... I heavily advocate for, you know, this should be at the front and centre of, of the solutions as well, um, having our own courts and dealing with our people on our terms. So in the in the parts of Australia where there are s- sort of similar initiatives like the Koori Court in Victoria, as Annika mentioned, or some of the circle sentencing initiatives in New South Wales, do you think they're showing that they work? I don't think the Koori Courts just go far enough, to be honest. You're saying um, that they, they only deal with the, the lighter offences. They don't employ that same um, more Indigenous-style approach to the more serious offences. Yeah, that's that's exactly right. And how would you see that working in more serious cases? You know, I guess there's going to be a fear if this is something that the Indigenous community wants, that there'll be two levels of sentencing, one for Indigenous people and one for non-Indigenous. But how would you see it? working, should there be somebody who comes forward who has done a a more serious crime? What sort of penalties would you like to see put forward and what sort of rehabilitation and I guess more community-based solutions would you like to see? I think when people look at Indigenous law, they often think of speedies and, you know, the, the physical hurting of each other. But, you know, we are not a static society. We are evolving, we are growing. And just as the Western laws change, we adapt as well, like with, within our laws. Um, so if we were to introduce Indigenous laws and ways of doing, um, it's not all about spheres, okay? <laughs> it's not all about spheres. You know, we have our ways of doing things. And a lot of that is with community. Instead of one judge at the front, you know, it involves a lot of our elders who we highly value and respect, you know, this with the same attitudes towards that Western people have with judges you know, in their courts, we're in a, you know, 10-minute Skype call and I'm trying <laughs> to provide answers on, you know, the the solutions to Indigenous incarceration. I mean, it's taking us 200-plus years to be in this position of mass incarceration and, you know, I'm hopeful it's not going to take us that long to get out. That was Taylor Gray, uh, who's doing a PhD at Newcastle Uni. Such a complex issue. I think one thing that everyone would agree on, Annika, is that we all want to see that incarceration rate for Indigenous Australians come down. Yeah, not everybody agrees on the reasons for it being so high and what needs to be done to fix it. But I think if you have a common goal like that, hopefully we can get there. Tomorrow on The Briefing, a very interesting historical story. Uh, The female fighters at the centre of the Jewish resistance. Listener.